Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel up? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 168 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, Lunar Orbit. We left off last week with Apollo 8 at the end of the translunar coast phase. It was almost time for loss of signal and lunar orbit insertion. One of the paradoxes of Apollo 8 was that the astronauts on their way to the moon were far less able to determine their status than the flight controllers on Earth. Crafts Trajectory specialists were able to detect tiny changes in Apollo 8's path by measuring the Doppler shift in its radio signals. Even a tiny change in the frequency of Apollo 8 signals meant something to Kraft's people. Their data was so good that when they plotted the curve, you could see a little wiggle in it, due to the spacecraft's slow thermal control spin, barbecue mode. The trajectory was nearly perfect. Only two minor mid-course corrections had been necessary so far, and it looked as though Apollo 8 would get to the moon without making any more. Almost perfection. Meanwhile, a constant stream of telemetry beamed from the Apollo 8 to Earth, and it was picked up by the giant radio dishes of the manned spaceflight network. For example, Mission Control could tell whether the fuel lines in the SPS engine were as warm as they were supposed to be or frozen solid. And the reports from Mission Control were terrific. The fuel cells were functioning even better than expected. The computer was running like clockwork. There was plenty of maneuvering fuel left. Mission Control radioed Apollo 8 that they were go for lunar orbit insertion. The moment of truth, the crucial lunar orbit insertion burn would come when Apollo 8 was out of radio contact with only themselves and their machine to rely on. If the firing went as planned, the radio blackout, because of being on the far side of the moon, would last 45 minutes. But if there was a malfunction and Borman decided to abort the mission, Apollo 8 would come around a good bit sooner than that. In Mission Control, 
Chris Craft's trajectory people would know how things had gone simply from the moment they picked up Apollo 8's telemetry. Strapped in their couches, Borman and the crew waited out the last minutes of a three-day journey. They all knew they were cutting it very close to aim nearly a quarter of a million miles across space to a world 2,160 miles across. Zip just ahead of its leading edge and go into orbit just 69 miles from the surface. 69 out of 234,000 left very little room for error. It was understandable that Borman's crew wanted something more than numbers to assess their accuracy of the path. Before the flight, the trajectory people had told them that they would not be able to see the moon as they came in. But there was one thing they would know, and that was loss of signal, often called LOS. This was the moment when Apollo 8 would slip behind the moon and lose radio contact with Earth. Once the craft was on its way to the moon, the controllers would be able to predict the time of LOS down to the second. If it happened precisely as Mission Control predicted, Borman's crew would know that all of the calculations were right. Here's the clip for the countdown of loss of signal. Apollo 8, Houston, two minutes to LOF. Apollo 8, Houston, one minute to LOF. All systems go. Uh, Roger, safe journey, guys. Thanks a lot, Trips. We'll see you out the other side. Apollo 8, 10 seconds to go. You go all the way. Roger. Borman watched the mission clock intently. At precisely T plus 68 hours, 58 minutes, and 4 seconds, he, Lovell, and Anders heard static in their headsets. He could hardly believe it. Right to the second. Here's a clip of Borman recalling the event in 2013. And one of, the, one of the important things on the flight plan was when we would lose communication with the Earth. Because as you go around the moon, the communications would be blanked out because it was S-band radar that uh, we were using to communicate. And so that was a very critical point. We had never seen the moon, as John mentioned. And uh, I was really, it was perfect darkness, and we are flying backwards, hoping, aiming 240,000 miles for, aiming for a place 60 miles above the lunar surface. So I was watching that time very, very, very closely uh, and hoping that we were on track. And just at the minute we were second, we were supposed to lose communication, we lost it. And I, boy, that's great. What a wonderful deal. And I said, we just lost it right on time. And Andrew says, uh, well, they probably turned the damn radio off. <laughs> the astronauts were running through the checklist for the lunar orbit insertion burn when suddenly the spacecraft was enveloped by darkness. Anders realized that they were deep in the shadow of the moon. As his eyes adjusted, he saw that the sky was full of stars, so many he could not recognize constellations. 
He craned his head toward the flat glass to look back over his shoulder where they were headed, and he noticed a distinct arc beyond which there were no stars at all, only blackness. He realized this hole in the stars was the moon. Here's the clip from Anders. Well, we, as Frank said, and as John said, we didn't see the moon because we weren't supposed to look at it because the sun was sort of right behind it, afraid it hurt, we'd hurt our eyes. But when we uh, uh, oriented the spacecraft going backwards along our path, just as we were cutting in front of the moon, like, like high schoolers trying to outrace the train uh, in their jalopy and be beating it by a yard, uh, it, we went into the shadow of the moon, where we were both in the shadow of the moon from the sun and the shadow of the moon from Earthshine. And it was dark. I mean, it was, it had been kind of just, the sky was sort of a gray. You couldn't see stars very well, but it wasn't dark coming to the moon. But now it was black. There were stars everywhere. You couldn't tell which ones they were. There were so many. And I remember looking back and uh, seeing all these stars, and suddenly there was this big black hole. And I got to tell you, the hair went up on the back of my neck because that was the moon. And uh, when we popped out of that shadow and relit our engines, we were in lunar orbit. That was one of the major decisions we had to make because, uh, you know, if we were had any problems at all, we'd circumnavigate the moon and come back again. So one of the decisions and what we had to do behind the moon with no communication with the Earth was to, of course, light the engine to slow down. Falling into darkness, Apollo 8 was pulled toward its rendezvous with the moon at more than 5,000 miles per hour. The spacecraft was turned so that its big SPS engine pointed forward into the direction of flight. Borman, Lovell, and Anders would need every bit of its power because Apollo 8 would have to slow down in a hurry or else speed right past its goal. It would take just four minutes to slow Apollo 8 to 3,700 miles an hour, slow enough to go into orbit. Inside the command module, Borman's crew set to work running through the checklist to bring the SPS engine to life. With ten minutes to go, rapid-fire conversation in the jargon-rich language of spaceflight buzzed in the command module cabin as Anders called off to Borman each item on the checklist. Now I have a clip of what is supposed to happen with the lunar orbit insertion burn, and this is from Mission Control. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, 69 hours, uh, 3 minutes, uh, now into the flight of Apollo 8. Apollo 8 uh, now traveling over the back side of the moon. Time of ignition for our uh, service uh, propulsion system engine burn. 69 hours, 8 minutes, 52 seconds. Some uh, a little over 4 minutes away from this time. Apollo 8 will perform its uh, burn uh, in the guidance and navigation mode using the onboard computer and the disky, the display keyboard. To do this, uh, the crew will uh, key into one of their guidance programs on the disky. The uh, service propulsion system uh, gimbal is trimmed before the burn. Uh, Maneuver to burn altitude uh, has already been accomplished. A good deal of data will be flashed on the disky. And then in the final 30 seconds, a countdown to time of ignition will come up on its face. Then at time of ignition, uh, 
minus second, five seconds, comes what, in effect, is a final go, no go. The computer, in effect, asks the crew, may I proceed? To execute the burn, one of the crew, probably spacecraft commander Frank Borman, must punch the proceed key. So at uh, 69 hours, uh, 4 minutes, 55 seconds into the flight of Apollo 8, this is Apollo Control. Now I have a clip from the flight recorder of the astronauts going through the checklist and then firing the engine for lunar orbit insertion. I'm going to give you a go. Go point there. Go. Yeah. Got two minutes to go. Hey, you know, the one thing we found is we didn't go to trim. Yeah, yeah. it's a trim. It goes to trim. Or zero. It gets to trim. It is? Okay. Yeah. I'm let her eyes more. I can't see squat out there. You want to turn off your lights? Check it. Hey, I got the moon. Do you? Right below us. Okay. It is below us? Yeah. And it's, uh... Oh, my God. Watch out. Look at that. Well, come on. Let's, what, let's, uh... Okay. 6906. Stand by. We're all set. 213, 212. Okay. 690620. Okay. Delavie, thrust A, normal. Normal. Translation land controller, armed. Armed. Rotation and controller both armed. Armed. Tape recorder's going stop. At this point, the flight recorder was stopped. We'll pick up right after it was turned back on. Oh, look at that. Fantastic. Well, fantastic. Yep. Well, you know, I still have trouble telling the holes from the bump. All right, all right, come on. I've been looking at that for a long time. 20 hours, I guess. Okay. Coming up 07.45. Disky should be One minute. Come on, Jim. Let's watch what we're doing. proceeding on 99. Standing by for engine on Ignable. Proceed when you get it. Okay. Start your watch when you get ignition. Stand by for Della V normal B. One second, two seconds. All right, how's everything? You got him. Pressure's holding good. All right. Everything's good over here so far. Everything's looking good. Fifteen seconds. Four ball valves. Everything is great. Okay. Pressures are coming up nicely. All right. Everything is great. We go on this four long burn. She holds good. Just a little bit in her own. Good shape. PC check. EMS is counting down. Got 
Congratulations, gentlemen. Yeah, zero, zero. Okay, bird A to enter. Thanks. Okay, Parker. Okay, got it. We're in a 169.1 by a 6005. Proceed. Proceed. Zero, zero. Go back to two. Zero, zero, enter. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Okay. We go, we go to 37 and then two, though. In case all of that wasn't clear, here's what happened. With seconds to go, the computer gave its flashing 99 message, and Lovell pushed the proceed button in response. Four seconds later, the engine lit, pressing the men into their couches. Slowly, acceleration mounted, but there was no noise at all, just a gentle vibration and a smooth, steady push. Anders scanned the gauges. Tank pressure, valve position, fuel quantities. Pressures are coming up nicely, he told Borman. Everything is great. Time seemed to slow down. Each man knew the engine must fire for the prescribed duration. No more, no less. If the engine shut down prematurely, or if it didn't deliver the proper amount of thrust, they could end up in a weird, errant orbit. If it fired even a few seconds too long, Apollo 8 would lose so much energy that it would crash into the moon. By the two-minute mark, the burn had begun to seem very long. Two more minutes passed without mishap, and then Anders counted down the last few seconds. Borman knew the computer was programmed to shut down the engine automatically, but he wasn't taking any chances. At zero, he pushed the shut-off button, just in case. Shut down, Borman said. Suddenly, they were weightless once more. The astronauts ran through their deactivation checklist like clockwork. Lovell queried the computer for the dimensions of their orbit. They were circling the moon in an ellipse that ranged from 69 miles at the point above the far side to 194 miles at the opposite point above the near side. The SPS had done its work beautifully. Within a few tenths of a mile, the orbit was perfect. Here's a clip of Jim Lovell recalling the event. When we looked at the computer, uh, it, it showed that we were in an exact orbit. Uh, I think at that time it was about 60 by 160 miles in a sort of elliptical orbit to begin with. Uh, and uh, so everything on this particular flight up to now was working perfectly. Apollo 8 drifted above the far side of the moon while three astronauts looked down at a scene of total desolation. It appeared devoid of color apart from various shades of gray. With no atmosphere to soften the view, it was a scene of unreal clarity. Everywhere there were craters, smooth round bowls, misshapen gouges, gentle hollows, tiny BB shot holes in the gray moon, shoulder to shoulder, one on top of another. 
Large craters bore the scars of smaller craters. Here's how Jim Lovell described it. But when First we finally came into the earthshine, or uh, sunshine, actually, we came out, I think we were best expressed as uh, you know, three school kids looking through a candy store window. You know, the flight plan was forgotten for a few moments. Our noses were pressed to the, the glass. And we were all looking at those ancient old craters on the far side of the moon, which, of course, as you all know, we don't see from the Earth. And, uh, and to see what, what they were and how they were, we were just 60 miles above the, uh, the moon at that time. And uh, I think that's one of the uh, great impressions I've had in the, in the first instances of actually becoming a satellite of, of the moon. Anders described the moon as a big beach with sand darkened by the cold embers of bonfires churned up by a big game of volleyball, but now deserted. Lovell, meanwhile, got out the map and tried to figure out where they were. That wasn't easy. They were over a part of the moon where the sun was almost directly ahead and the moonscape was without definition, like a bleached, rocky ocean. Finally, Lovell spotted a huge crater with a dark floor, like a mountain lake. That was Tikhovsky's Crater named for the Russian scientist who had dreamt of spaceflight over a century before. Lovell recognized it just as soon as he saw it. Minutes later, Apollo 8 crossed over into the lunar near side. It took several tries for Anders to make contact with Earth. But once the high-gain antenna locked onto the signal, it was amazing how clearly Capcom's voice came through. Here's the clip. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, we're looking at engine data and it looks good, uh, tank pressures look good, uh, we have not talked yet with the crew, but uh, we're standing by. But we've got it, uh, we've got it, Apollo uh, 8 now in, in lunar orbit, uh, there's a cheer in the, this room, uh, this is Apollo Control, Houston, uh, switching now to the voice of Jim Lovell. By 60.5, good to hear your voice. Next, the astronauts were asked to describe their view of the moon. The moon is a uh, different thing to each one of us. I think that each one of uh, each one uh, carries his own impressions of what of what he's seen today. I know my own impression is that it's a a vast, lonely, forbidding type existence or expanse of nothing. It looks rather like clouds and clouds of pumice stone. And it certainly would not appear to be a very inviting place to, to live or work. Jim, what have you uh, thought most about? Well, Frank, my thoughts were very similar. The vast loneliness up here on the moon is uh, awe-inspiring. And it makes you realize just what you have back there on Earth. The Earth from here is a grand oasis in the big vastness of space. Bill, what do you think? I think the thing that impressed me the most were the lunar sunrises and sunsets. These in particular bring out the uh, stark nature of the terrain, and uh, the long shadows really bring out the relief uh, that is here and, and hard to see in this very bright uh, surface that we're going over right now. Frank Borman did not join his crewmates in their excited descriptions. 
He was more concerned with the health of the, his engine. In Houston, the engineers were poring over strip charts of data from the burn. Borman wanted to know, as soon as possible, what they found out, and he wanted Mission Control to give him a go-ahead for each new orbit. Otherwise, he would prepare to leave. Seen from Earth on December 24th, the moon was a ripening crescent. Most of the near side was in darkness, but that meant that almost all of the moon's hidden face, the dark side, was in sunlight. Inside Apollo 8, Bill Anders manned a pair of Hasselblad steel cameras and a 16mm movie camera. His goal was to record on film as many lunar mysteries as possible. His photography plan was packed with objectives, and Anders had gotten to work minutes after Apollo 8 reached orbit. Here's a clip on the photography plan. Now, Frank was not a great photography fan, but NASA definitely wanted us to uh, shoot the uh, shots of the lunar surface, and they had a plan that greatly exceeded even my ability to, uh, to follow. Jim was uh, busy photographing along the flight path through the navigation system, and I was shooting right, left, and... Uh, and uh, we, one thing that you, I don't think we had a light meter. The NASA had calculated what the, uh, the reflected light would be depending on our longitude, which depend on our time. And so I just checked the clock and I'd turn it F this or F that. And, uh, and so we got a lot of good pictures of uh, the lunar surface. Uh, related to that, I had named a bunch of craters before the flight. Didn't ask anybody, didn't ask Frank. Picked a nice big one for him, slightly lesser one, and then a well-formed, a small one for me. And uh, all the politicians that were involved, you know, the, the crater naming guys threw all that out. John, there ought to be an investigation. There, you know? <laughs> but I picked them, at least mine, so it was just over the other side of the lunar horizon so that we could see it, but nobody else from Earth could. So it wouldn't have been named, but we could talk about it. So I talked a lot about coming over Anders and photographing it and Borman and Lovell and Gil Ruth and I even named one after you, John. So, uh. Bill, uh, the crater that named for you was actually named Siakowski, so I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> and the Russians got it ahead of you. <laughs> well, interesting that when they finally did uh, honor us and, uh, and uh, the Apollo 11 crew uh, with actually named craters, and they had, of course, picked six Russians who hadn't even been there, uh, they picked the one place in the moon in that double shadow that we couldn't see. When Borman, like any tourist, asked to take a picture, Anders became the rigid one. He didn't want to take any pictures that weren't in the photo plan. Now, armed with his map and his checklist, Anders scanned the parade of craters searching for his assigned targets, and whatever else might look intriguing. The command module was not designed as an observation platform. Only the two small rendezvous windows were reasonably clear, but the view through them was disappointingly restrictive. To make matters worse, the best maps of the far side, drawn from unmanned probe photos, weren't that accurate. 
Even though Anders thought he knew where he was, he couldn't find anything he recognized among the swells and hollows. And when he managed to get his bearings, it was all too easy to lose track in the scramble of setting up camera gear, changing film magazines, and switching lenses. At first, he hesitated to take pictures, but he decided if he was going to come home with anything, he had better just aim the camera and fire away. By the end of the third orbit, six hours into the 20-hour lunar visit, he had already taken many of the targets on his list, but there was still a lot left to accomplish. The far side of the moon was turning out to be different from the place Anders had envisioned. Like most of the astronauts, he went to see the film 2001 A Space Odyssey when it opened in the fall of 1968. And somehow, through the weeks of training, poring over the unmanned probe pictures, it was still Arthur C. Clarke's moon that stayed in his mind. A place of drama, with towering sharp-edged mountains, cliffs, and cracks. Instead, he'd come nearly a quarter of a million miles to see dirty beach sand. It was a place of such unrelenting sameness, crater upon crater, hill upon hill, that to see it with his own eyes was almost anticlimactic. Anders realized with some disappointment that the moon was a less intriguing world than he had imagined. About that time, Borman rolled the command module until it was right side up. When the maneuver finished, Anders glanced out the window. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. What is it, Borman asked? The earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty. Slowly, beyond the bleached horizon, a radiant half-circle of blue and white emerged ascending from the black sky. Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. Borman said, seizing the chance to give Anders some grief about a picture that wasn't in the photo plan. But Anders wasn't listening. He called urgently to Lovell. Hand me the roll of color quick, would you? But Lovell was already joining them at the windows. Oh, man, that's great. Hurry, quick, Anders said. At last, he slapped on the color magazine and aimed the camera with its telephoto lens. Lovell was impatient. You got it? Take several of them. Here, give it to me. After telling Lovell to calm down, Anders snapped the picture. Are you sure you got it? asked Lovell urgently. Yeah, it'll come up again, I think, Anders said dryly. The first witnesses to an earthrise returned to their work, each carrying the impact of the site. For his part, Anders had been so focused on photographing, observing, and describing the moon since they arrived that it had not occurred to him to look at the earth. When it suddenly appeared, his overwhelming impression was how beautiful it was, even more so beside the barren face of the moon, and how very small. Here's the clip of the astronauts describing this event in 2013. Well, we were in a 160 by 60 mile orbit uh, on the uh, first three orbits. 
and going backwards. And so, you know, we never saw the Earth. We were, we'd pop around and uh, we're looking at the lunar surface and we were upside down. And so on the third rev, I believe, uh, we uh, circularized. We burned the uh, engine again, slowed us down even further to lower the, uh, the apogee of the, the high point of the orbit down to 60 miles circular. And uh, Frank then turned the spacecraft around, sort of like it ought to be, going forward. And uh, we were coming around on this third revolution, and I was taking pictures over here. Uh, Jim was asleep. I'm not even sure what he was doing. And uh, I think Frank yelled out, look, or something. And uh, here was this gorgeous thing coming up over the, uh, the lunar horizon, the back side of the moon, much rougher than the front side of the moon. And so, boy, there was a mad scramble for cameras. Uh, each guy had one, started firing off. I was lucky because I had one with a long lens and color film. And uh, I just kept snapping and turning the f-stop. And uh, each other, each of the guys took uh, the same view, but different size lenses. And it just so happened that NASA picked the one I took as the uh, iconic Earthrise picture. But frankly, even though they both claimed they took it, uh, they know who did. But I consider it kind of a crew picture. Apollo 8 had been in lunar orbit for more than eight hours now, and Borman was in need of sleep. He left Anders in charge of the systems while Lovell attended to his landmark tracking. Here, too, the computer did amazing things. Once Lovell had determined Apollo 8's position and entered into it into the computer, he had only to give it coordinates of the next target, and the sextant automatically swung to the right place. It even moved to track the landmark, compensating for the spacecraft's swift motion. The results were breathtaking. Lovell felt as if he was flying only a few miles above the surface. Peering down into craters, he spotted landslides, even a few boulders. To his surprise, he found he could see detail even in the shadows. If Anders found the moon less intriguing than he had hoped, Jim Lovell did not share his disappointment. Lovell's most important target lay on the near side of the moon in the eastern region of the Sea of Tranquility. There, mission planners had picked out a possible site for the first lunar landing. One of the main objectives of this mission was to reconnoiter East-1, as it was called from orbit. Lovell had studied the approach that a lunar module would make before landing, and had picked out landmarks along the way. Some of them, the ones that had been discovered on the unmanned probe photos, had no names, and Lovell, following the explorer's prerogative, had named them. Now, as Apollo 8 flew over the Sea of Tranquility, Lovell was pleased to find the familiar craters and mountains so easy to recognize. Over East 1, Lovell searched for boulders and other potential obstacles to a descending lunar module, and he found none. The lighting conditions were even better than he expected. It seemed a fine place for a team of astronauts to try to land. With only 69 miles between himself and the moon, Lovell wished he were making that journey.
Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.